morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, May 1st, we are studying 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. In today's text, St. John teaches us how God's love for us moves us to love each other. We love because God first loved us. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Tim Eden. Pastor Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It is great to be with you again. So, Pastor Eden, we are talking about 1 John today. You were telling me before we started that you've been recently leading a Bible study on 1 John. What should we know about this epistle and any context leading up to the section of chapter 4 that we have for today? Um, Yeah, fortunately, I've uh, uh, been looking at um, this letter a little bit with some of our people here, Um, uh, uh, seeing um, the the threads that uh, John um, circles uh, on, throughout the letter. Um, some of the ones that, that come to mind for me right away is the idea of fellowship that he starts with in the beginning, fellowship with the Father and the Son. Um, uh, the, the Spirit is highlighted again for us here, as well as um, all three persons of the Trinity. Um, uh, and again, that uh, um, uh, that all of this that we know uh, comes from um, eyewitness testimonies. Um, and, and again, that is uh, emphasized for us again um, in this text here. Those are some of the things that come to my mind. Yeah. The, the language of fellowship or koinonia in the Greek was very prominent in that first chapter. And the, that particular language maybe hasn't been in John's language so recently, but this talk of loving each other as Christ has loved us really puts really put some flesh and blood on that that concept of fellowship, which sometimes can be pretty abstract, like, oh, we kind of feel nice about being together is sometimes how fellowship, I think, gets heard. But John has a much more concrete picture of it, and the way that he's talked about love, and we'll continue to talk about love in this text, really gives a, a, a flesh and blood picture of what that means to have fellowship with each other. Yes, yes. Um, and, and yeah, like you mentioned, although the fellowship language doesn't come up here, um, uh, the abide language is yeah. clearly, you know, uh, prominent. Um, uh, and in my mind, those things are, are closely connected. Yeah. So with those things in mind, we turn to our text. This is 1 John 4, beginning at verse 13. By this we know, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. 
because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's our text for today. That is 1 John 4, verses 13 to 21. All right, so Pastor Eden, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the Spirit. Take us into this language of abiding. What does it mean that we abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us? Um, yeah, right away, um, what is brought to my mind is um, Jesus' own words in John 15. Um, uh, we have uh, his, um, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, uh, uh, discourse is probably too big of a word for it, but um, that whole section in the in the first half of John chapter 15, um, uh, and where he uses that same language, um, uh, of uh, abiding in him, he uh, abiding in us. Um, and, and so then for John's hearers here um, in this epistle, you know, this is, this is long after um, Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, obviously, um, uh, and, and probably even um, decades uh, later. And, and so you have people who were not eyewitnesses of Jesus, um, might even be, uh, you know, multiple generations later. And um, this language of how do we know um, uh, is how he starts this section as John has, has used this language in previous sections as well. Um, so how do we know? Um, I see him lay out three things here um, of how do we know that, that we abide in, in God, in Christ, um, and he and us, um, and the first one he gives to us um, is is the mention of the Spirit again. Hmm. Okay, so one of the ways that we know that we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us is because he has given us of his Spirit. So what does that mean? What is Why does John bring up the Spirit as the first way we know? Um, well, in the immediate context here in John chapter 4, he's just been talking about um, testing the spirits um, at the beginning of John chapter 4, and um, how uh, uh, there's there will be people who come and, and say one thing and say another, um, but it is only the, the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, that, that gives us this assurance, um, but this is the spirit that Jesus had had spoken of um, again later in in John fifteen, um, as he's as he's telling them about this uh, close you know connection and relationship of abiding in each other. Um, uh, at the end of John fifteen, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, uh, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Um, uh, and also mentioned in John fourteen and John sixteen, the Spirit that he will send. Um, you know, the question then can be, well, how, again, how do we know? Um, how do we know if we have this um, true Holy Spirit? Um, and this is where I'm certainly comforted um, uh, by um, our, our historic theology of, of baptism. Um, uh, earlier in this epistle, John mentions the, the anointing um, from above um, and, and a reference uh, to uh, the anointing with the Spirit. Um, 
And although baptism isn't explicitly mentioned, I think uh, it, it's quite clear, at least to me, that, that he is referencing um, baptism as a place that we can be confident that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. Yeah, I think the language from chapter 2 about the anointing definitely connects us with baptism, even in the more immediate context in verse 7 of this chapter, where John says, let us love one another. He says, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Mm -hmm. This language of being born of God connects to the way Jesus speaks in John chapter 3 about being born anew, being born a second time, being born from above, from God, which happens through the, the water and spirit. John's language throughout this epistle using terms of family. He's talked about his little children. He's talked about brothers, that we are a part of the family of God. It is holy baptism that connects us into God's family. And so to to connect the spirit to that, I think, is, is exactly right here in verse 13. The other thing that, that I think we should connect here, and, and you brought this up with the testing the spirits of chapter 4 then, one of the ways we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because of the gift of the spirit has to do with the true doctrine and then the language of, of remaining in the word. Mm. Uh, not only does Jesus speak about abiding in him in John 15, but in John chapter 8, he talks about if you if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Mm. So to abide in the word and to have that true doctrine, which is centered in the confession, at least in the first part of chapter 4, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is another way that we know that we have the the true spirit, the spirit of God, is is from the teaching which comes from remaining in the word of Christ. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, great connections, um, and you know, right away you asked about this idea of abiding in Him and Him in us. You know, what what does that mean? I I don't I don't know um, what other words to put on that, how to describe that, other than um, you know, just an an incredibly close relationship. You know, you mentioned family language with the little children. Um, and, and we've already mentioned fellowship language, you know, but, but this idea of, of being so closely connected to, um, God, father, son, and Holy spirit that we, um, are actually in one another. Um, you know, how do how do we elaborate upon that? I I am honestly not not sure, and I don't know if you have ideas on that uh, either. Um, but it's actually quite incredible to me this this closeness that is described for us. Yeah, I I think we we let the language of the scriptures stand and and marvel and rejoice in the truth of this mystery that we dwell in Christ and He dwells in us and even the Father comes and makes a home with us as Jesus says in John's Gospel and the the Spirit dwells in us because Christ gives Him to us this great joy uh, to be the temple of God to use language that Paul uses that again that He dwells in us we dwell in Him that absolutely close connection, the picture of a vine and branches, Jesus uses it, I think is a, a fantastic one, mm. that he is our source of life. Maybe that's another uh, way of expressing the same idea. Yeah. He is our source of life. Apart from him, we have no life. It's only when we have that close connection to him, which he gives, and, and he has that same connection to us. We abide in him, he abides in us. That is a wonderful mystery. It is true, and it is something that, that we rejoice in, uh, to know that this is true. So we know that we abide in him, and he abides in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now you mentioned there's, there's other things that help us to know here. 
How does John continue then into verse 14? How else do we know? Yeah, so uh, here in verse 14, he, he, re- he reiterates um, the, the importance of what uh, John um, uh, himself, and he, he says we here, you know, so um, is he referring to him and um, uh, the other apostles? Um, is he somehow referring to him and his readers? Um, there's probably a little bit of debate over that, but I would lean toward the former um, because he's he's highlighting again what they have seen and testify to, um, what they what they saw with their own eyes and bear witness to. Um, uh, again, this is one of those things that takes us right back to the beginning of this letter, um, where from the beginning, you know, what we have seen, what we have touched with our own hands, um, uh, this is what we're proclaiming. Um, and uh, then the, the truth of this is also part of what um, gives us the assurance of this abiding in um, in God and, and him in us, uh, that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Um, you know, John, John witnessed, um, Jesus and, and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension firsthand, and many others did. Um, and so this also then, um, uh, for those, even if, even for those who did not see it themselves, um, for those who believe that, and know that and trust in that, um, uh, this also then um, can be a, a sort of a, a simple assurance um, in, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm the way that you describe those who have not seen and yet have believed takes us back toward the end of John's gospel, which came to my mind as well here, that the reason John is testifying that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world is so that you would believe, and by believing, have life in his name. And, and again, the fact that John is an eyewitness and he testifies to these things truly, and, and also to connect it to the Spirit then, John testifies to these things truly with Christ's promise that the Holy Spirit will be the helper for the apostles. Certainly the, the Holy Spirit is the helper for all Christians, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But I, I think from that language in, in John 14, 15, 16, in that upper room discourse, that some of those promises we we definitely need to understand as Jesus making specifically to the apostles, that as they preach, and especially as they write these things down in the scriptures, that their eyewitness testimony is true, not only because those men actually saw it, but because the Holy Spirit is with them, helping them to write down not just their own recollection of things, but the, the very Word of God. And all of that, again, lends that great certainty that John wants his readers to have here in this text. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it kind of leads us into the next verse, um, although we'll have to come back to the end of verse 14 for a second. But um, on this note of the believers, those who have seen, and then us as believers who have not necessarily seen with our own eyes, uh, to me, this connects with then verse 15 and the idea of confessing. Um, uh, this this uh, word translated confessing, um, homologeo, um, has been become a fascinating Greek word to me because um, what it literally means is to to speak the same back. Um, and, and so it requires someone to hear something and to say, yes, I, I, I acknowledge that. I agree with that. I confess that to be true as well. Um, and, and so that's kind of the idea here then is even for us who have not maybe seen with our own eyes, we have heard and we believe and we also confess 
that truth um, than in 15, you know, the truth of Jesus as the Son of God. But there we have, again, some significant statements about Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Son of God, um, some deep, deep uh, theological things in just a few words. <laughs> That's right. So let's go back then to the end of verse 14, as you said, the the fact that the Father sends his Son to be the Savior of the world. Talk about what Jesus is named there as the Savior of the world. Yeah, um, uh, you know, there's the the um, Savior from our sin, um, you know, in, in Matthew's Gospel, highlighted at the beginning with Jesus' birth. Um, but what stands out to me, um, and especially with the time you've spent in, in John's Gospel and letters lately, um, uh, when he says savior of the world, um, that's significant. And, and I don't think for us, we often s- hear the significance in that because um, from my perspective, and I want to hear yours, um, in John's gospel and in First John, uh, the letter here, um, the world is almost always, if not always, in in um, contrast to God or, or in, in sort of, um, oh, what's a good word for it? Um, in, in fight against God. And yet, incredibly, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Um, uh, Jesus then um, is proclaimed in, in John 4, um, uh, the gospel, John 4, um, by the Samaritans that he is the savior of the world. Um, and, and even earlier in 1 John here, when uh, in chapter two, when he's mentioned as the propitiation for our sins, uh, but not ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. Um, again, the, the, this is this is quite significant language um, for Jesus to come and actually be the one who died and paid for the sins of the whole world, um, even those who are are against him. Yeah, yeah, he came to his own; his own did not receive him. The, the way that you brought out the way that the word, the word, the world is used in John's gospel, I think is very significant and really adds to our understanding and hopefully our wonder at what Jesus does say in John three sixteen that God loved the world, this mm-hmm. world that hated him, that he created, but did not receive him. That's precisely the ones that God has loved. Those are the ones that Jesus has loved. And it is a reminder of what John has been saying in this chapter in particular, and really throughout this letter, as he's been extolling the love that God has for us. You know, who are these people that God has loved? They are the ones who did not love him first. They are the ones who, in fact, were his enemies. They are the ones who who hated him, who rejected him. And yet those are the ones God has loved. It's a reminder of just how amazing grace truly is that that there is absolutely nothing that we've done to merit or earn this love of God because he's loved people who didn't love him. And so to hear that Jesus is the savior of the world should be a, a wonderful comfort to us because that means that that Jesus has loved us even when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were sinners and that's when he came and he died for us. And again, just that language of, of Savior, especially here in this section, we shouldn't attach or we shouldn't unattach from the very specific context of the way that Jesus has saved. It's by coming to die, as you've said, to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the way that that Jesus has saved the world. Um, so the, the great magnitude of God's love, this 
this otherworldly nature of God's love in the sense that it's not the type of love that you and I would have on our own. We, we tend to love the people that love us first or that are going to love us back. <laughs> God loves people who didn't love him first and who may not love him back. He still loves them. And then I think there's also great comfort in the fact that Jesus is the savior of the world, which means that he is the savior of me. I mean, I'm a part of the world and yeah. that means he's my savior too. I'm, I'm included in that. There's a, the for you nature of that. So all of those are some of my reflections on just the fact that he's the savior yeah. of the world. Oh yes. Yes. Um, again, like you're saying the depth of the love, um, you know, already a few verses ago, that idea of God is love. And, and we're going to come back to that in, in the verses going forward. Um, it, it redefines love for us. Um, uh, it makes us wonder, as you said before, and maybe even awe. Um, and, and I love the fact that you highlighted that again, this is, this is for me, for us, because I am one of those sinners. Um, I, I was, you know, um, and still am one that he died for, um, before I had done anything, um, you know, to ask or deserve or, 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 you know, even want it. Um, and it also then makes this message that John speaks here and that we have to proclaim an inc an incredible message, a, a, a very different kind of message, you know, and it actually makes it good news um, yeah. uh, that we have to share. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and as, as you said, you know, it, it shows us what love truly is. We talked a little bit about this in the previous text that on our own, we would come up with definitions of love that are never satisfactory and always end up being far less than the love that God has for us and really a different kind of love. Uh, on our own, we would have a love that ends up being selfish, that leads us toward our sinful desires. It's only when we see this true love, the love that comes from God, the love that God, in fact, is, as John has said, it's only when we see that that we can have this good news and that we can then begin to love each other in the true sense of that word, which is where, again, John is going to take us as, as we go farther into this text. So all of this from the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. Real briefly, before we leave that verse, and it really does connect it to what we're talking about, you made mention of, of this fact kind of in passing. I think it's just at least worth pointing out that these are Trinitarian verses. Hmm. Not, that, not that John is specifically laying out here the truth say that we confess in the Athanasian creed in a very dogmatic way, but the, just notice how in, in this text, John could not write the way that he does unless he were <laughs> Trinitarian. The, uh, this text can only be written in this way and believed as John would have us believe it. If John believes that the true God is the triune God. And I, it's just, I think worth noticing when we encounter texts like this in the scriptures, that it's not always, again, that very direct way that we confess in the Athanasian creed, but that a, a Trinitarian theology and reality is simply assumed by the writers of the scriptures and the way they write, it just naturally uses that kind of language. So it's, it's here in this text in the way John writes. So he's said that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And then even, even more particular language, and it's related to that, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. So talk about that confession that John highlights. Um, again, the, at first, the idea that, um, you know, that this has to be proclaimed to us first, um, that this is something crazy, you know, that, that, that 
a person that that a man you know is the son of god you know that that's crazy talk and it was crazy talk to lots of people when jesus you know walked to the earth um uh, and yet through the work of the spirit uh, we are given um the gift of faith to believe that um and again it it then just adds to the significance of um who uh has uh, who, not, not just kind of who Jesus is when when we think about it in sort of this abstract nature talk, but you know who it really is that died on the cross. Um, you know, as we as we can say, you know, God died. Um, now, only the second person of the Trinity, but but again, this is God, um, the God Man, Jesus Christ, and um, and He gave up His life for us. Um, uh, and yet he has always been, you know, he was there when, uh, uh, when the world was, rec- was created, um, you know, the logos from the beginning, um, uh, the fullness of God in the flesh, just all of these kinds of ideas, um, come to my mind with, with this confession of Jesus is the son of God. Yeah. There's a, a definite connection there to the prologue of John's gospel, which I think you just referenced where John mm-hmm. in chapter one writes in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God, or maybe even a little bit more particularly later in the, the prologue at the very end in John 1.18. And I think this does relate to what he's writing here, where John says, no one has ever seen God, mm. but the only God or the only begotten God, he is the one who has made him known. Mm-hmm. So the it is the son of God who is Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes God known to us. In him, we see what it means that God is love, and he always remains our focus as Christians. So it truly is a marvelous confession that John gives to us and that we share as he writes it here in 1 John 4, 15. We're going to pick up more of this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Tim Eden this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 1st. We're studying 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21 with Pastor Tim Eden. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, prior to the break, we were talking about this confession that John gives us in verse 15 of our text. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we were talking about the importance of this confession to say that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to hear more about that from you. And the reason is because, as you've brought up already in the first part of this chapter, John has taught us how to test the spirits. And the test that he gave us in verse 2 of this chapter was that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So so we, as Christians, we confess Jesus has come in the flesh. He's a man. 
Here we're confessing Jesus is the Son of God. He's truly God, as you said, to the effect that we can say, and rightly so, we must confess that the one that died for us on the cross is, in fact, God. Mm-hmm. So why are both of those parts of our confession important, that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he is the Son of God? I think first um, it's important for the simple answer because it's true. Um, I, I know that I know that might be kind of a yeah. you know almost a simplistic answer, but you know that's the first thing that we're called to confess is um, what is true and what is revealed to us by God and His Word to be true. Um, and so we see both aspects you know as we as we talk in in our you know theological language you know the two natures of christ that he is both man fully man and fully god um we see both of these things throughout the gospels and then reiterated um uh, as truth uh, throughout the, the the letters um throughout the the book of acts and and the apostles preaching um uh, but the other reason I think it's important, in my opinion, is because it is, I'll say again, crazy. Um, uh, you know, and so th- there's there's no one like this. <laughs> there's no one else. Um, he is completely unique um, in this regard. Um, uh, uh, even even as I say that, even unique in the Trinity in a, in that sense, because you know he is the only person of the Trinity that is fully man and fully God. Um, that doesn't elevate or, or lower him, you know, but um, again, just unique in that regard. And so it is important for us to hold to that and, and proclaim that um, uh, to to all so that they can hear, so that the Spirit can work, and so that they can also confess what is true. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and this one who is the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, God who has become man, he is the only Savior of the world. Only he is qualified to be the Savior precisely because of who he is, fully God, fully man. And this is what we confess as Christians. This is the true doctrine that leads to true love. Again, it's, I think, worth pointing out, as we've said in previous texts, that this true doctrine John is very concerned about for the sake of the true love that must come forth. And, mm-hmm. and without, if you get one of those wrong, you're not going to get the other one right. And so the importance of true doctrine, yet again, John is highlighting for us that we would confess Jesus to be the Son of God. That's verse 15. Mm-hmm. And again, because of that, God abides in him, he in God. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we've got the language of abiding yet again, and now John continues to bring out the language of love. How do these things go together in this verse? Uh, I mean, I think as you just highlighted a second ago with, you know, this truth, this true doctrine, you know, uh, uh, the, this uh, truth that we that we have come to know, Um that is true kind of outside of us of who, who God is, who Jesus is, um, but then connected to us because of what he's done for us, um, then it is um, intimately connected with the, not just the idea of love, but the actual um, truth application living uh, of love. Um, these go hand in hand. Um, they're inseparable. And so like you said, if, if we have one off, the other one is going to be off. Uh, now, I'll also be the first to admit that as I try to 
consider the depth and 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 the mystery of Christ uh, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Um, that is an ongoing kind of journey um, of trying to learn and understand the depth of that. And I would say that's also then true when it comes to the love piece, um, uh, to truly understand, uh, to truly grasp uh, the depth of God's love for me, uh, for the world, um, and then the depth of what that actually looks like in, in real life application. Because that's where I, I, I think he goes here um, uh, in these verses. Um, again, his love for us um, that has brought us to abide in him. Uh, but then also then that flows out um, in our love for others. Right. Yeah. John John is taking us toward the love that we have for each other here. And I, I think it's it's worth noting again, and he will mention this even more specifically in verse 19. But even here in verse 16, we see that the love that God has for us is always primary. The love that God has for us always comes first. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we come to know and to believe is God's love for us. And apart from that, our love can never truly flow forth. So once again, we, we start with God's love for us. That's how we abide in him. He abides in us. In verse 17, then, John writes, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Take us into this confidence that John writes about in verse 17. Yeah. Um, uh, so this idea of, I mean, he really shifts now in 17 um, and following um, into the full emphasis on the love. I feel like verse 16 was kind of that connection of the abide language and love um, and now the full focus on love. Um, uh, this idea of love perfected, um, I think another way I saw it translated is sort of a, a love completed. Um, uh, so there's sort of a completion aspect here. Um uh, and, and my first reaction to this verse is um, uh, um, this idea of my love needs to be perfect. Um, you know, that, that by abiding in God now, I need to strive for this perfect love for others. And while that's true, I don't think that's first, I, as I pondered this more, I don't think that's what he's actually emphasizing first. Um, again, I think the first emphasis on perfected love or or completed love is on God's perfect and completed love for us. Um, so uh, when it comes to the day of judgment, uh, when it comes to the last day and Christ's return, um, uh, where do we place our confidence? Is it is it in how good or not good I have I have loved God and loved my neighbor? Um, no, instead, I, I need to uh, be reminded by others and remind myself my confidence is in the only one who has perfectly loved, and that is God in his son Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, I think to understand the language of the love being perfected as to love being completed, or maybe another way of saying it is that the love reaches the goal that God has for us, so that, that the, mm-hmm. the goal of God loving us in this case is that we would have precisely this confidence because we couldn't have confidence on the day of judgment apart from the love that God has for us. The only way that we could have confidence on the last day is if God has loved us first. And it's so it is that 
that is the the goal. It's not the only goal of God's love. I think John makes that clear. But God's love for us is is brought to the one of the goals that He has for us by giving us this confidence, so that it, it's not about, as you said, it's not about my being able to love someone else perfectly, but it is about the love of God working what He desires to work in me, which is that confidence on the last day that I can stand before God, not at fear, but rather with this confidence because I know God has loved me. And and I think that that connects to what John says at the end of verse 17, where he says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. That language reminds me of the way John started chapter three of this epistle, where he says that, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We will see him as he is, and we will be that way. Mm. So I think John's recalling that language here, that what what am I that, that he is also? Well, I'm a child of God, and I'm a child of God because God has loved me, and that perfect love that God has for me reaches its completion and its goal by giving me confidence to stand before him on the last day without fear. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad you reminded uh, me uh, us of of the, the language there at the beginning of chapter three, um, because there he's also talking about Christ appearing, you know, so that, that whole last day Christ return timeframe. Um, and, and then that emphasis on children of God actually brings me back around to Jesus as the son of God. And although John here isn't necessarily emphasizing like, uh, like the apostle Paul does, you know, at, at other places, this, um, uh, through the Son of God, the one and only Son of God, we also are sons or sons and daughters of God. Um, he doesn't go there explicitly in in First John four here, but I think that is kind of the 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 parallel idea um, that you know we are also children. We have been adopted into the family, um, uh, and uh, you know Christ is the first fruits kind of idea. Um, and when He comes again, um, then we too will be. Uh, glorified some of the language from from Roman Romans um, uh, we will be as he is it it in some sense to some some degree <laughs> yeah yeah well and I think the the language that John has used of you know he's he's spoken to his readers as little children and as the beloved ones and both mm-hmm. of those I think connect us to Christ in this way that we are those loved by by God just as Jesus is the beloved Son of God so now we are beloved children of God by that adoption that happens through faith. And that gives us this confidence on the last day. We don't need to be afraid of God's judgment. We don't need to be afraid of losing the things of this world because we know that our eternity is secure in Christ. And so John, I think, continues with this idea of the confidence into verse 18, and he says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Talk about this contrast that John brings up between fear and love here. I think, like you said, it uh, um, it, it it's it's sort of the opposite of the confidence language, um, uh, you know. And, and I think we as humans are, um, especially adult humans. Uh, we are really good at putting on a facade of not being afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 you know, whether it's just kind of the stereotypical macho, um, you know, appearance, um, 
uh, or whether it's even the, um, you know, put on the happy face that, that things are, are okay in life, um, or some of the much deeper, uh, maybe even internal things, um, even just in this life, the, the fears of rejection, the fear of not belonging, um, uh, the fear of, of extending yourself and, um, and not, you know, having those feelings reciprocated, you know, whatever, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, and yet, um, in God's perfect love and in and through that, you know, he casts out fear. Um, uh, he casts out fear in us. Um, uh, and while we won't experience that fully here, um, uh, uh, you know, before Christ's return, um, when that day comes, it'll be really cool to experience that where, where there is no longer any fear, um, uh, both in a, in a, in a, in a temporal worldly relational sense or physical sense, even, or in an eternal sense. Hmm. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this, this thought of love, perfect love, casting out fear, because the language of the old Testament regularly speaks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon mm, even tells right. us. Mm-hmm. And in our own catechism, and this is really striking, especially when you can put it in the context of 1 John 4, our own catechism, the explanation to each of the commandments says we should fear and love God. <laughs> so yeah. so actually both things apparently go together according to, to the catechism. So yeah. I, I'm curious, and, and I've, I've been asked this question many times as a pastor, you know, should we fear God, pastor? Uh, so can talk a little bit about that. How, how, what is the right fear of God? And how does that go together with what John is, is saying here? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent thought. Um, and, and so my, my first thoughts are, um, yes, they're again, especially in this life as humans on this earth. Um, uh, there is a, a an extent to which we do need to continually fear God. Um, I know sometimes we soften it with respect or awe. Um, but I think there's many instances in the old Testament and new where, um, it is really truly a, a, a sort of a fear of wrath and punishment. Um, uh, you know, so even that language of punishment here, um, for fear has to do with punishment in, in verse 18. And I think there is something, I, I guess, good and right to that um, for us. But but post-conversion, um, after we have come to know the love of God in Christ, um, that that is, at a minimum, it's changed. Um, um, again, I think because we still have our sinful nature clinging, there, there is a level of that that is needed. Um, because there is that possibility for us to, to walk away from God, fall away from the faith. Um, uh, there is essentially that law uh, and, and the work of the law on us, um, convicting us and, and, and maybe creating a, a little bit of fear that is, that is good and necessary for us in this life. Um, but again, I think maybe what is being pointed to here is that when Christ returns, fear won't be anymore because it won't be needed in a sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's helpful. And I think the, the reality that you've been talking about that we are both sinner and saint at the same time in this life, I think it bears into this conversation. Very important. I think you've, you've brought that out well to the effect that you know, John's not contradicting the old Testament or anything like that <laughs> when he talks about perfect love, casting out fear. But the, the reality is that on the last day, we don't need to be afraid precisely because of the perfect love of God. And that reality then, if I can say it like this, without weakening the word, you know, that reality that inspires in us the proper fear of God, that that recognize, and I think the proper fear of God is recognizing he's God, I'm not. Mm-hmm. And what does he do with that reality? He loves me. And so I, I'm put into that proper relationship with God, recognizing who he is, recognizing who I am. And that ends up casting out the fear in the sense of, of terror, that I, I'm not terrified at what God's going to do on the last day. Mm-hmm. Rather, I look forward to that day with great joy because I know he's approaching that day according to his love for me that he's shown me in Christ. Yeah. And so so just as in so many other ways with Christ coming, there are um, uh, uh, sort of glimpses of the fullness of Christ's kingdom that he brings in his ministry, in his healing. Um, I think this is another aspect of that where as he has brought us his love, um, shown us his love and his death and resurrection, um, uh, and then continues to pour that out upon us through word and sacrament, through um, through the body of Christ. Um, the the even now being in Christ, our our fear is you might say reduced um, uh, because of because we know his love, um, and so maybe it's not gone completely here, um, but but we're already experiencing to a degree uh, what we'll experience fully uh, when he comes. Yeah. So this love that Christ has for us inspires us to love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. I think that's one of the more well-known verses Mm -hmm. from this epistle. Yeah. There's, I think there's a children's song about that. If I'm not mistaken, we love because he first loved us. Fantastic language there. And then John uses that to launch into what he's, what he's talked about before the reality then that we love our brother and that shows forth our love for God. So help us into these last few verses here. Yeah. Um, you know, as we've been emphasizing all along, verse 19 is a great, uh, a short, succinct statement of, um, God's great love, um, and that again, it is it is first by Him, initiated by Him, but that that's also not that not the end of it all. Um, uh, uh, his love for us and in us then um, uh, must uh, uh, it, it necessitates the the outflowing of love um, from us um, because. Because one, we know, um, as John has highlighted, we know and believe what God has done for us and for the whole world. Um, uh, and then just abiding in him, uh, uh, this, this love will, will naturally flow out. Um, the, the, the branches bear fruit, um, not because they, you know, ha- have, have figured out how to bear fruit, but because they're connected to the vine, they just, they do, they bear fruit. It won't be perfect, um, but but we should see that to some extent. Um, uh, we should notice that. We should um, 
uh, be living that. And, and sometimes we need that explicit word um, to for us to say, "Oh, am am I? Um, or how's that going? Or or where does where does my love need to be refined or or, or checked a little bit more?" Um, uh, because it has to 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 flow to others. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the way John diagnoses it here with the language of of who you can see and who you can't see. Mm. If you're saying I love God, well you can't see him and you're saying you love him. But if you're not loving your brother and you can see him, I mean those those two things are incompatible. <laughs> and, and as you said, I mean it's it, this is an opportunity for us to examine our lives and repent as needed so that when we are looking upon our brother and truly seeing him, and not loving him, then that's going to hinder our our love for God because we can't see God, as he said. The only way, and the way, and this is where I, I think the, the genius of the way John writes, as we saw in the previous text, you know, no one has ever seen God in the sense that like Moses wanted to see God in the Old Testament. No one's ever mm-hmm. seen him like that. Mm-hmm. The way we've seen God is the way that he's manifested himself to us in the love that Christ has for us. So if, if love is the way in, and it's in if God's love is the way that he's made himself manifest to us so that we can see him for who he truly is, if we then fail to show that same love to those people we can see, again, it's just the, the incompatibility that John puts in front of us and say, look at this, doesn't make any sense, what's wrong here? And it's a call to repentance, and rightly so. Yeah, yeah. Um uh, there, there's connections to Jesus' own words again with this language uh, of you know here love love your brother, um, but um, earlier in this letter, um, uh, especially chapter three, this emphasis emphasis on love one another, but all of that flowing from Jesus' own words, uh, I, I can't help but well. I remembered a little bit, but again, with the help of others, was was brought to some of these parallels of um, the end of John 13, um, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Um, and even the next verse, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, so there's a, again, there's a natural outflowing of this love, but there's also a, a, a sort of a, a a natural connection to um, the witness, the the testifying, the the mission um, uh, uh, of of this the spreading of the good news, um, and 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 then the other really interesting connection that was brought to my attention was um, Jesus. Uh, sometimes it's called a parable. I don't know if it technically is or is not, but Matthew twenty five, um, uh, the language of the the sheep and the goats, and how. Uh, you know, Jesus talks about, tells, you know, these that are on, um, uh, on the one side that um, you did all of these things, to, you know, to me. And, and they say, wait, wait, when did we, when did we do these things? As you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Um, uh, this, this, you know, connection of loving God flows into loving others. And in a way then is also, continuing to to love God himself. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 great. And the way Jesus, you know, when he's asked about the greatest commandment, he talks mm-hmm. about, well, love the Lord your God with all that you are, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He connects those two things, the love of yeah. God 
and the love of neighbor. Or as we say in the, the language of the catechism, sometimes the first table of the law, loving God, and the second table of the law, loving neighbor. These things go together. We have a tendency to try to separate the two and think, oh, I'm, I'm doing a great job at loving God, keeping commandments one through three. <laughs> well, if I'm not looking at the, the second table, I'm not keeping those, then am I really loving God? That's That, I think, is the point that, that John is making here. The reverse is also true, that if I'm, I'm striving to love my neighbor, but I have no love for God according to the for, first table, something's also wrong. The, the beauty of the scriptures is that those two loves always go together and build on each other, the love for God and the love for neighbor. And of course, all of it, all of it comes only from the fact that God has loved us first. The only way that we can love God and love neighbor is if Christ has loved us first, and he has. Got about a minute here, Pastor Eden. Help us to wrap things up on this wonderful text of Scripture this morning. Um, the the final thought that comes to my mind is, is maybe a challenge, and that is, again, going back to um, uh, God being our definition of love. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, just as John is challenging us on loving God, but but hating our brother, or maybe not fully loving our brother, um, we also need to be regular, regularly hearing God's word so that our definition of love for our neighbor is actually true to, to God's definition. Um, that's going to be guided by his word, uh, by the spirit that's been given to us. Um, but that's, a, that's an ongoing um, thing that, um, again, this side of um, uh, Christ's return that we won't get fully right, but I, I think an ongoing striving um, uh, that we need to have. Pastor Tim Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. He has been helping us today to study First John chapter four, verses thirteen to twenty-one. Pastor Eden, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 John or 2nd or 3rd John, which we will cover after this, or the book of Revelation, that's our next series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.